Welcome to Goat Valley Campgrounds. Looking for a place to escape your busy life and reconnect with nature? Goat Valley Campgrounds features 300 acres of quiet forest and peaceful scenery for you to enjoy. Come meet Kate. She runs the place like her parents before her. We know you'll enjoy your stay as long as you behave yourself and follow the rules. Your survival depends on it. The No Sleep Podcast presents Goat Valley Campgrounds by Bonnie Quinn. Chapter One. I run a private campground. My family has owned it for three generations now. I'm the current manager. I'm sharing my story because, well, I won't be able to do so for much longer. Call it a legacy, call it posterity. It's important, is what I'm saying. Simply handing out the rules isn't enough. It was never enough. There will always be dangers from the thing in the dark to the lights. And yes, even the man with the skull cup. And I won't be able to speak to so many of you for much longer. This is my last chance to tell everyone my story. When we're done, I'll return to the woods. My name is Kate. Let me tell you about Goat Valley Campgrounds. Goat Valley Campgrounds is about 500 acres. Most of that's shaded by forest, and the rest is an open field. We host events like dog clubs, music festivals, etc. We've also got open camping weekends throughout the year, and in the height of summer, we're open full-time for general camping. A lot of people take advantage of that. It's a cheap and pleasant vacation. Hammocks get erected in the trees, grills get unloaded from the backs of trucks. There's some pretty elaborate setups from the people that come back year after year. The return campers are smart. They know what they're doing. Everyone knows their job when they roll in. They unload as a group, tents start to go up, community areas and kitchens go in the same place year after year where they found the land suits their setup best. Tent locations might change, but every camper knows where their tent is going in their allotted land. It's a far cry from the disheveled messes that show up and simply expect everything to work out with no prior planning. By noon on setup day, the experienced campers are sitting under their day shades, sipping beer, while the newbies are relocating tents because they didn't leave enough room for walkways. I've tried to help. I put together a guide that everyone receives in the mail once I have their registration info and payment. Sure, the postage is a bit of an expense, but I feel having a hard copy makes them more likely to read it. Not having to fill out as much paperwork with the police is worth the money. I've titled the brochure, How to Survive Your Camping Experience. I really wish people would take that name more seriously. The first page is full of practical advice, stuff like, Have a sturdy, waterproof container that holds a spare change of clothes and a blanket. This will ensure you have something warm and dry if your tent floods. 
place solar lights near your tent stakes. This will keep people from tripping over them or the ropes at night. If the ground is soft from heavy rain, reinforce tent stakes either by weighing them down or by using longer stakes. They can get pulled out of the ground by a strong wind otherwise. The second page is advice more specific to the area. This campsite has been in the family for generations, after all, and a parcel of land obtains a sort of significance when it's been passed down from air to air. It's an old place in the world. Perhaps not an ancient place, but old enough to have attracted the attention of those things that prefer old places to make their homes. We'll have to sell the campsite before it becomes an ancient place, as it will be unsuitable at that point. But there are still many generations to go before that happens. This is the part that the new campers don't take seriously. They think it's a prank, some little joke of the reclusive camp manager who perhaps doesn't spend much time around other people. The experienced campers try to tell them otherwise, but they don't always listen. I feel my rules aren't onerous. Here's a sampling. If you hear something trying to enter your tent at night, sit up and say in a clear, calm voice that you are not receiving visitors, but it is welcome to visit you in the morning. If a stranger appears the next day asking for entrance to your camp, invite them in and give them food and drink. This will give you good luck for the rest of your stay. Fairy rings are generally benign. If there are the remains of a small animal inside the ring, however, inform camp management immediately. Don't follow the lights. I can't believe I even have to say this one. Don't follow the lights. I confess it's a haphazard list, but there's a lot of vicious things out there, and they all function in slightly different ways. I do some things as part of camp management in an effort to minimize the danger to my campers. We set out traps for the creatures stupid enough to fall into them so that they can be dispatched by my uncle and his two sons. We're closed during Pentecost, on Midsummer Day, and other significant times of the year. But we can't do everything. We can't save people from themselves. Every morning, I circle the camp on a four-wheeler. My staff do the same a couple times a day. We look for any new developments on the land, such as a tree that needs pulled down, for example. Uh, Campers know they can hail any of us if they need something. I leave directly after I finish my breakfast and a cup of coffee. My house is on the campsite, so it's especially easy for me to take the morning shift. There's never many people awake yet, so it was especially noticeable when I saw a man approaching me ahead, walking down the middle of the road. He looked unremarkable, they always do, but he walked slowly and deliberately, his head bowed so that it was difficult to see his face, and he carried before him in both hands a human skull. I pulled the four-wheeler over and waited, my stomach twisting with fear. Rule number 12, if you're approached by a man offering you a drink from a cup made out of a human skull, accept. It will taste foul, and you won't be able to eat without vomiting for the next 24 hours, but this is better than what he will do to you if you refuse. I've drank from the cup before. It's how I learned of his existence and subsequently added him to the rules. He stopped me on the road, and at the time, I thought he was a camper needing assistance, until he handed me the skull cup and bade me drink. I did, as I'd already learned that when a being of power asks something of you, it's better to comply. It may not be enough to save you. Sometimes they invite you to partake in your own demise, but the odds of compliance are better. He lifted the cup to my lips and I drank. One swallow. Another. He kept the cup there, 
His thin fingers brushed my hair back when it slipped past my ear, and I drank it in entirety. The water inside tasted bitter and salty with a vegetal undertone. My stomach twisted and I swallowed hard, struggling to keep it down. Thank you for the drink. He knew I lied, for he smiled briefly in wry humor, his dark eyes flashing with cold amusement. It was wise not to refuse. He told me what he would have done had I not drunk, and my insides crawled with horror as he spoke, and I wanted him to stop, but to interrupt would have been a dire insult. His words were etched into my memories, and for days after, I wept whenever I thought of the fate I had so narrowly avoided. I still feel cold and small when I think of the things he told me. That evening, I threw up my dinner. I threw up the crackers I ate. I even threw up water. Finally, I stopped eating and drinking altogether and waited a full day to try again. I was weak and miserable, but I survived. Now, seeing the man approaching on the road, I mentally cursed my misfortune. This was our busy time of year. I couldn't afford to be sick for a day. He stopped just before he reached me, raised a hand, and beckoned for me to come closer. He didn't raise his head until I stood just across from him. And when he did, he flashed that thin, dry smile at seeing the expression of dread on my face. Are you not thirsty? Not particularly, but if you wish to offer me a drink, I will not be so rude as to refuse. My heart hammered in my chest. Let him release me, I silently pleaded. He put a hand over the top of the skull, covering up the carved opening and the water inside. Be at ease, I did not come to offer you a drink. I came to give you a warning. Some of your charges have conducted business with the children. I stood there staring blankly at him in incomprehension. He sighed, almost imperceptibly, and even though his expression didn't change, I felt the weight of his disapproval when he spoke next. These ancient beings do not enjoy having to explain themselves. The children with no wagon. Someone bought ice from them. Oh. Oh, God. He won't save them. He walked past me, his shoulder brushing mine as he did. No one will. Rule number 18. You can buy ice from the children that approach your camp only if they have a wagon. Those are the children of other campers trying to make some extra spending money. They only upcharge by a few dollars, so consider tipping. If a group of children approach you without a wagon, do not buy from them. Act like they don't exist. They'll eventually leave. It wasn't until the man was almost out of sight that I realized I didn't have any idea which campsite had purchased the ice, and there were a lot of people here right now. I did the dumb thing. I jumped on the four-wheeler, turned it around, and went after him. I pulled up along the side of the road, a respectful distance away, and called out to him. Hey, what campsite was it? Are you thirsty after all? I understood it for the threat it was. Nope, I, I'm good. Sorry for bothering you. I drove away before he changed his mind on granting me mercy. This was a terrible dilemma for me. I hadn't had anyone buy from the children without wagons before. Most people find their silent stares creepy, and the normal children are pretty aggressive with their ice routes anyway, so that no one needs to buy ice by the time those other children show up. I had no idea what to expect. I had no idea how to undo what had been done. 
I got on the radio to contact one of my senior employees. Brian, we've got a problem. Someone bought ice from the children. Seriously? But they're creepy. They just stare at you. I don't know. Maybe the camper was hungover and wasn't paying attention. Anyway, we've got a problem now. I'll say. So what can we expect to happen now? I have no idea. My great-uncle tried to run them over with his pickup once, and they caused a tree to grow up around the truck and crushed him inside. But I haven't ever had anyone buy ice from them. You just assume it's going to be bad then? A bunch of unruly, creepy children that go around trying to get someone to buy from them? Absolutely. Get in touch with the rest of the staff and tell them to be careful and watch out for anything unusual. Start asking around and find out who bought the ice. What do you plan to do when we find them? I don't know. I'll probably start by yelling at them for a bit. Careful. As bad as this is, you don't want to make it worse. They could ask for a refund. While my staff searched for the ice buyer, I holed up in my office for the rest of the day. I have an extensive collection of resources on inhuman things, from family notes to scholarly books on folklore to collections of fairy tales. Yes, fairy tales. There's patterns in them that still apply. I went digging through my books of camp management and folklore, trying to find some sort of ritual or appeasement I could attempt. Nothing I was willing to risk. The family notes all agreed on one thing. Leave the children alone. I wasn't about to risk myself on a mere theory. Night fell and I reluctantly abandoned my efforts until the morning. My worry made it impossible to sleep through the little girl weeping outside my window and begging to be let in. She's not in the rules. She only harasses members of my bloodline. I was almost relieved when the beast came and dragged her off while she screamed in mortal terror, signaling that dawn was near. Not so relieved that I didn't cover my head with my pillow, though, trying to block out the sound of that final sickening crunch and the heavy tread of the beast's footsteps as it retreated before the morning sun. Only once it was silent did I roll out of bed and throw on some clothing. I skipped making coffee and instead went straight to the garage for my four-wheeler. I needed to see what happened overnight. The man with the skull cup stood on the road, staring off into the trees and calmly sipping the water inside like he was taking his morning tea. I pulled up close by and killed the engine so we could talk. Skipped your coffee, did you? Want a drink? I'm quite satisfied, but I will gladly accept if you wish to share. That thin smile again. Now he was just messing with me. I did warn you. I'm disappointed that you didn't heed it. I'm working on it. My staff will find out who bought the ice. And nothing bad has happened yet. Oh? Look over there. I looked in the direction he pointed to. Not far away, a slew of people, twelve in all, dangled in midair. For one brief, horrifying moment, I could only think of the time I'd found someone that hadn't heeded my rules, their gutted body dangling uncomfortably close to my house like it was a warning. How the police had let me do most of the work getting it down while they waited on the ground with their damned paperwork. I don't make my staff clean up the remains. That's asking too much. These people were alive. I almost wept with relief. They'd been pulled from their tents and stripped naked, then taken into the woods. 
Their bodies were covered with bruises and scratches from being violently dragged across the ground. Then they'd been hoisted up into the trees and left hanging by their ankles from the boughs. Next time it will be their flayed skins hoisted in the branches. You should end this quickly. I'm surprised by your concern. I need people to share a drink with. I can't do that if everyone dies. He turned and left, leaving me staring at the victims dangling in the trees like fleshy wind chimes. I radioed the staff and told them to block off the road leading to this part of the campground. Then I made some phone calls. Getting these people down would require the help of family. There's a lot of us. We tend to stick around the area, even if we're not directly involved in the campground. My uncle was quick to respond, along with some uncles once removed or some cousins or I don't know. I don't keep track. We set up ladders and started cutting the terrified campers down. They didn't fight much while we were doing this, just hung there limply, crying or whimpering softly. It made the job a lot easier. Dead weight is predictable, and we could pull them towards the ladder, get a good hold on them, and then cut the ropes and pass them down to the ground. Most of them were silent with shock. Some wept. There was one, however, that was still lucid. He clutched at me as my uncle passed him down off the ladder to where I stood waiting to help him get his feet under him. His knees buckled as soon as he was on the ground, and I eased him to the ground. He clutched at my arms, his eyes wide and unfocused. His nails were cracked and dirty, stained with blood from crawling at the dirt as he was dragged across the ground. The children, they, they were laughing. It's, it's just a game, ma'am. I, I, I couldn't get, get away. He began to shake violently. I glanced around to see if anyone had thought to bring blankets with which I could cover him. They're like children. Tormenting a fly. They're gonna start pulling the wings off next. He took a deep, shuddering breath. They're going to kill us. The man's words resonated in my head. The children were going to start killing people. That did seem like the logical progression. And the man with the skull cup had said as much. These inhuman things don't lie, typically. I'd never known him to lie. I could still empty the campground, I mused. That didn't really solve the problem. It would just redirect the children from my campers to my family. And me. I live on this land, as do a number of many more closely related relatives. If given a choice between my family being at risk and my campers, I'll pick my campers. At least so long as casualties were within an acceptable margin wouldn't do to lose many of the people that essentially pay the bills around here, after all. Clearly, I had to do something to stop this from escalating. My books had failed me. I wasn't about to resort to guessing. There was, however, someone I could ask. I went to my most senior camp. There are a group of friends that have been camping here for over two decades. The members have changed to the point that the founders have all been replaced, but they've kept the traditions and are willing to work with me. As a result, I've given them the best campsite. It's up on a hill nestled in a clear patch among the trees so that the camp has shade most of the day, and there's places to hang hammocks. A gas line runs up the hill, so I have to keep part of it free of trees, which funnels the breeze straight to their spot. It's noticeably cooler there than the rest of the site. 
It's also the most dangerous place to camp in Goat Valley campgrounds. I heard shouting before I arrived. I slowed, cutting the noise of the engine down enough that I could make out words. I needn't have bothered. It was nothing but cursing. I couldn't tell if it was an inner camp dispute, doubtful, they kept the drama to a minimum, or if they were angry at another group, plausible, they had a couple feuds going on with the younger camps, or if it was something else. Bracing myself, I hopped off the vehicle and walked in past the line of tents that marked their boundary. There were five people in the common area, clustered around the beer kegs. They had a cooler that was outfitted with four taps, and they ran lines up through a steel plate that was packed with ice, providing access with chilled beer from the tap at any time. The kegs were all homebrew. Right now, they had all four taps open, and dark liquid was spilling out onto the ground. There was an odd smell in the air that turned my stomach. Like a butcher's shop, I thought, finally placing the smell. Hey, Louise! The senior camper that did all the brewing turned around at my call. Look at this! Is that blood? Yes! She kicked one of the kegs. All of them are blood. What's going on? Don't let this get around, but someone bought ice from the children with no wagon. Yeah? They didn't come by our camp, but I've seen them around. Creepy things. Even without the rules, you'd think people would know better. You'd think that, wouldn't you? Anyway, I've come to talk to the thing in the dark. I'm hoping it'll tell me what to do about the children. I can ask about the kegs while I'm at it. I glanced at the back of their camp, where the trees crowded in close enough so that their shadows overlapped and the forest floor was noticeably darker under the lattice of their branches. Sure. We haven't seen the solars go out all week, though, so maybe it's not at home. Rule number 10. Keep track of what time the charge on the solar lights typically runs out. If the solars go out before then, do not leave your tent until sunup. Do not open the tent, not even to look. Stay in your tent, try to sleep, and wait for daybreak. It likes us, you know. I give it beer. You... what? Give it beer. I pour a mug of beer into its branches whenever we tap a new keg. It's only polite to share. And it's okay with this? <laughs> Hasn't killed me yet. And people say I'm reckless. I promised Louise to ask about the kegs, and then I crept into the forest, wincing at the branches that cracked under my feet. Some of the creatures in the campsite were less malevolent than others. So long as they were respected, they wouldn't kill you or even seriously harm you. I'd spoken to the creature in the dark only once before, when I thought to put the senior camp near its lair. I asked if their proximity would disturb it. It replied that they would not, but nor would it hesitate to take any of them were they out in the open when it passed by. I don't know what happens to the people it takes. Their bodies are never found. The entire camp dreams of dying, however, of slow and torturous death in whatever manner they fear most. I dream of the little girl and the beast, and when I wake, I know that I'm going to be talking to the police yet again. The creature's lair is nothing more than a mound of broken branches, easily mistaken for a pile of stacked debris. There are some signs, however. The air grows colder as you approach. Sound falls away, encasing you in silence so that the only thing you hear is your own heartbeat. Mine was growing steadily faster as I drew nearer, and it felt like the darkness in between the piled branches was reaching out, gathering up all the light and dragging it to its doom. 
Flowers littered the forest floor, the white, parasitic ones with bowed heads feeding on the tree roots running below the barren soil. Excuse me. Sorry to... <clears throat> sorry to bother you, but... Uh, I... I have a question. A long silence. I waited, wondering if this was in vain and perhaps the creature wasn't there. Then it spoke and its words were rough like stones rolling against each other, and I winced in pain, for it felt like my head was between those stones and my skull would crack under their weight. It asked me what I wished to know. I'm here uh, about the children. You know, the ones with no wagon. They are not of my concern. They do not come here. I don't mean to be rude but I think they are your problem. The ground rumbled underneath my feet, a faint tremor as I held perfectly still, heart pounding. Only once the ground was still again did I dare continue. You see, they turned Louise's kegs of beer to blood. She's very upset. That's the beer she shares with you. The children have harmed the one that brings me offerings. Well, Louise is passionate about her beer, so... Yes, they did harm her. Will you tell me what I need to do? A faint vibration rippled through the soil like a drawn-out sigh. The children are displeased by their lack of prey. They rejoice at finally being given an opportunity. I pressed my fingers against the bones near my ear, as if that could help relieve the pressure from its voice. To do what? The pile of branches shifted, the earth shifted and I stumbled, realizing in sudden terror that the small lump of debris was not nearly enough to contain the creature inside, and it was far larger and perhaps far more terrible than I'd imagined. Its shrug had nearly thrown me to the ground. The cakes are just the start. More will suffer. All will suffer. And then the dying will begin. My entire campsite was at risk. I felt cold inside. I could evacuate, I thought. I could claim there was something, a gas line rupture, disease outbreak. There were some options available that would explain why I was throwing everyone out. But then what about my livelihood? Would people run? I'm a little ashamed that greed factored into my choices, but this campsite has been in my family for three generations and I wasn't going to ruin it all now. Eliminate the one that started it. Everything else will unravel. The ground bucked violently, and I was thrown to my hands and knees. I stumbled to my feet, thanking it profusely. I gibbered my apologies for disturbing it and my gratitude for its advice. Then I fled, fighting the urge to look back the entire time. Did it tell you how to fix the kegs? Uh, no, it didn't. You're out of luck, I think. Seriously? Well, that's just not fair. We didn't buy ice from the children, so why'd they target our kegs? Do you know how long I spent brewing these? We've got five kegs, and one of them is even a cider. And I don't drink cider, but some people insisted. She gave a hard stare to a handful of her campmates loitering nearby. I'm very sorry, but there's really nothing I can do about it. She continued to glare at me. I think she was hoping I'd give them some sort of concession, such as a discount for next year or 
stopped counting the incline near the road as campable space that came out of their land allotment. I held my ground. There's a liquor store in town that carries a wide selection of beer. Nah, it's fine. Hard liquor wasn't affected. Time for gin and tonics, everyone. I left them to their drinking. Eliminate the one that started it. Those words rattled around in my head as I went from campsite to campsite, asking if they'd bought ice from the children. I received quizzical looks from the newer campers, but the older ones answered solemnly, understanding the gravity of my question. They'd read the rules. Finally, I found the camp that bought the ice, and they identified the person that had made the purchase. He was elsewhere at the moment, but I could stop by later, they suggested. I said it was fine. I wasn't ready to talk to him. I wasn't ready to take the creature in the dark's advice. I had to swing by the front office to meet with the police officer that was handling the abducted campers. Probably wanted me to cut a check for the hospital. Paying for medical treatment helped keep my people quiet, especially with the police there to indicate the authorities were going to obstruct any attempts to cause trouble by the victims. I admit that I resented it a bit. It's not like these people were likely to come back and keep paying camp fees. Some do return, though. You'd be surprised. I was still reading through the invoice the police officer presented when I happened to glance up and look out the window. On the other side of the road stood a child, a young boy, perhaps 11, barefoot with shorts and a t-shirt. In one hand, he held a pair of scissors. He smiled as my gaze fell upon him, and he slowly opened the scissors, shut them, open, shut, like children pulling the wings off a fly. Next time, it'd be their flayed skins hanging from the tree branches. The police officer said something, and my attention snapped back to him. I had to ask him to repeat it. When I looked through the window again, the child was gone. The thing in the dark had said that the children were tired of not having prey. Prey I'd denied them with my rules, and that this would only get worse and worse until people started dying. That everyone was in danger. Eliminate the one that started it. As soon as I was done with the officer, I jumped on my four-wheeler. I returned to the camp that had bought the ice and called the man responsible aside for conversation. I asked him if he'd bought ice from some creepy children with no wagon, and when he said he had, I asked why he'd broken one of the rules of how to survive camping. It was rule number 18. Hadn't he read it? He replied that there are a lot of rules. I took a breath held in a moment, reminding myself that the majority of people are good-intentioned and don't do things simply to be contrary or cause trouble, that it's my responsibility as both camp manager and a decent human being to be understanding and help people, because we have a common goal. I want them to have a safe and fun camping experience so they come back, and they want to have a safe and fun camping experience so they can come back. This man didn't ignore my rule simply out of spite. It was an accident. An unfortunate accident. I asked him why he'd glossed over that rule. My tone was polite and friendly without a hint of condemnation or judgment. That's the important bit. People respond in kind. So long as I didn't accuse, our ice man wouldn't become defensive and we could have a productive conversation. I'd done a lot of reading on conflict resolution and behavioral change. He hadn't taken them seriously, he admitted. He'd certainly read them, intently in fact, because he thought it was a joke, but it was a clever joke and he enjoyed it. But real? Nah. He pointed to his tent, showing how it had three feet of clearance between the other tents, rule number four, 
and that they'd brought a longer hose so they didn't have to split the closer one more than three times. Rule number six. The will was there. My system was flawed. It didn't change what I had to do. I thanked Iceman for talking to me and walked away. Then I went into the woods and gathered some things. It took a while to find them all. But I'm familiar with my campsite, and I know where these things are likely to be found. Then I returned to my house with the mushrooms in hand. They're called Destroying Angel, Amanita Verosa. I crushed the fungi and, careful not to touch it with my bare hands, took the resulting juice back to Iceman's camp. When nobody was looking, I poured the liquid into his reusable water bottle, swirled it around to coat the sides, and then left it to dry. They wrote the initial symptoms off as mere food poisoning. By the time Iceman's campmates took him to the ER, he was suffering from liver and kidney failure. They did their best, but I had put a generous dose in that bottle, and his body simply couldn't keep up, not even with medical intervention. He was dead within 36 hours. The police dropped by, of course. I talked with them for a bit. We commiserated on how difficult it can be to protect people from themselves. And that was the end of it. They understand what it's like in the forest. I feel I'm to blame. I know rules are ineffective, but they were easy. And that's what I relied on. I wrote off the deaths as isolated incidents instead of warning signs that I wasn't doing enough to determine if my rule list and other measures were accomplishing their intended purpose. You know what does help people change their behaviors? Storytelling. It's one of the most effective techniques, far more effective than a list of rules, which according to research is the least effective method and the most prone to antisocial behavior, which is basically people deliberately sabotaging the system out of spite. Instead of telling someone, do this, you tell the person a story that demonstrates the behavior you want. Preferably true, as that carries more weight. And the more personal it is, the more the individual will relate and subsequently accept what you're trying to tell them to do. I'm a camp manager. I don't have a list of rules because I'm trying to ruin your fun. I have a list because I'm trying to help you from coming back to camp and finding your tent collapsed and full of rainwater and having no dry clothes or nowhere to sleep. I'm trying to keep you from spending half a day setting up tents because you didn't plan where everything would go in advance. And I'm trying to keep you from doing small, simple things that could result in a horrific and most assuredly agonizing demise. Goat Valley Campgrounds was written and adapted for audio by Bonnie Quinn. Produced for the No Sleep Podcast by Phil Michalski. Musical score composed by Brandon Boone. Starring Lindsay Russo as Kate. Mick Wingert as the man with the skull cup. Erica Sanderson as Louise. Kyle Akers as Brian. Jake Benson as the hanging man and Peter Lewis as The Thing in the Dark. Join us next week for Chapter 2 of Goat Valley Campgrounds. This audio program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. 
All rights reserved. No reproduction or use of this content is permitted without the expressed written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc. The copyright for Goat Valley Campgrounds is held by Bonnie Quinn.